want to start off this morning by sharing with you this uh, Harris uh, interactive survey uh, that was done as a poll found that approximately 10% of Americans that were polled uh, are driving a car with their check engine light on. Now, and of those people who have their check engine light on, 10% have already been ignoring it for about one to two months. Now, what's most alarming is that about 50% of those who said their check engine light was on say that their cars have been showing signs of impending breakdown and indicating and have indicated that their light has been on for three or more months while they continue to ignore it. And it's sobering because the U.S. government kind of put these guidelines in place for us to require those in cars, uh, to put an onboard diagnostic system in place to alert drivers, right, so that the light can signify something that could be extremely costly or extremely dangerous to both the passengers within the car and people outside on the road. And so it's important to treat it seriously. And in this poll, they found that there was a litany of excuses that people had before ignoring it. And the top three were that, number one, they rationalized the problem's not so bad because the car seems like it's running fine. So I'm, I'm driving and there's no problem. Secondly, the cost of having to deal with the check engine light is too costly. I have to pay a very high price to get things fixed. Number three, it's just too much trouble to fix this stuff. So it's like, I don't have any time or I don't have the money for these things. And I want to propose to you that these are often the same reasons that we tend to turn a blind eye to sin, particularly within the church, within the family of Christ. <clears throat> that we rationalize when we see it in ourselves or in other people, well, it's not so bad. You know, that, that person is doing just fine. Or the cost of confronting people about that sin is too high. It'll end up ruining our relationship, or it'll cause a lot of drama, maybe some division within the church, or it's just too much trouble. Like, I don't want to get embroiled into other people's drama or cause trouble that way. And so this morning, I want us to be thinking about how does Jesus want us to see sin when it occurs within the church family? Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. We're in this series called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see our lives through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we've been learning in chapters 1 and 2 that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in the city of Corinth that instead of being blinded by the values of the world, that we can see clearly through our identity in Christ, that we're loved, we're forgiven, we're accepted uh, through the cross, and that because of that, we can receive wisdom from God to live out and gu to guide us and grow us in our holiness and in our unity together as his people, distinct from the destructive tendencies of the world. And then we saw in chapters 3 and 4 that Paul is beginning to practically apply this to the issues in their church like disunity. And so what's happening today is Paul's going to set our sights on the elephant in the room at their church, which was that Everyone was turning a blind eye to this outrageous, ongoing sin in the midst of their church and addresses how do we see clearly through the lens of holiness and unity in Christ and as his church together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality amongst you and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst pagans. For man has his father's wife. And you, speaking to the church, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this 
be removed from amongst you. So let's stop right there. This is going to be a heavy passage today, so brace yourselves. I know some of you are thinking like, oh boy, here we go. Um, Just what I expect from church, a lot of condemnation and judgment. That's not what's happening here, so let's take a look at what we're going to see. Verse 1, Paul says that it's already publicly known and reported amongst this church that they're tolerating this horrendous sexual immorality amongst them. Right, A man with ongoing incestuous relationship with either his mother or his stepmother. And he points out that even people who are not Christians would say to them, hey, Christians, maybe don't do that. <laughs> that that's, not, that's, re- that's not a good thing. And it's a poor reflection to the world about Jesus and his goodness and his righteousness when the people of God are ignoring this kind of sin. And so what we're seeing here in the first two verses is it's not just about this man's spiritual condition and testimony. It's also about the churches. Because we often think, well, I just should not call out someone else's sin because that's arrogant, right? That's who am I to judge? But what Paul says in verse 2 is he actually calls out the Corinthian church. You are arrogant because you're ignoring and allowing sin, this man's wickedness within the family of Christ. And it's arrogant because you think that it doesn't affect you. That in some way that you're so spiritually mature as if you're above it and immune to it. And instead, he says, you need as a church to genuinely mourn over sin, to know that it's destructive, that, and that if this man doesn't repent and continues to flaunt his sin and defiling himself and Jesus, then he needs to be removed from the church family. And this is a terrifying thought, but I want you to catch the big idea this morning that we as a church are called to confront and remove ongoing unrepented sin for both the good of the person and the good of the church. And so many of you are familiar with the concept. This is what we talk about when we're talking about church discipline. It's about how seriously do we take sin? Because you might remember back in chapter 1, verse 2, that the church is called to both holiness and unity, and not one to the exclusion of the other. That we learn in chapter 3, you can't be divided and be holy. Nor in this chapter can you be united while you are harboring unholiness. And so God takes our holiness and our help of individuals, uh, us individually and corporately together as a church so seriously that if we don't deal with our toxic sin personally, then he must perform surgery to remove that cancer before it grows and infects and destroys the whole body, not just the individual parts. Now, if you're anything like me, you should be thinking, well, that sounds really unkind and unhelpful. How is this possibly for our good? Look at verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus as a church, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. 
So what we see happening here is in verses 3 and 4, Paul is exerting his spiritual authority from Jesus. We need to deal with this blatant sin when the church is assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means that we can't ignore it, we can't just sweep it under the rug, that this sin is already known throughout the church, so that means we need to deal with it together as a church. And Now, what you should be asking is, does that mean, because I, I was a little bit terrified when I first read this passage uh, as a new Christian, does that mean that whenever someone sins that we're just going to kick them out of the church? Well, if we did that, then nobody would be left, starting with me, because we know that everybody sins, right? Romans 3.23, we all sin, all fall short of the glory of God. Instead, the picture I want you to get here is Jesus instructs us in Matthew chapter 18 that uh, when somebody sins, then we confront that person one-on-one. You take a person aside in private. You don't make a public spectacle of it. You confront them one-on-one about the sin. If they repent, then praise the Lord. They're restored, and they're, they're brought back into fellowship with Jesus. But if they refuse to repent and turn away from that sin, then Jesus says, bring two or three witnesses from the church family so that it's not just, as you're talking about this sin sin issue, it's not just he said, she said, but two or three other people that can confirm, yes, this person genuinely is repenting, turning from their sin back to Jesus by faith, or that this person refuses to, to repent of their sin. And if they repent, great, then they're restored. But if they still don't, then Jesus says there's the next step. Then it becomes a church issue. And so what that looks like for us is that means we involve the leaders of the church, sometimes pastors, sometimes the whole board, and that the church as a whole, if that person refuses to repent, then we need to let the church as a whole know that we may need to acknowledge that this person isn't really following Jesus because they don't see sin as a problem, and that we need to remove them from the worship and the fellowship and the communion of Jesus' family. And now what I want you to hear, because this is really important, because you're, you're starting to feel fearful. If you're anything like me, I felt very fearful from reading this passage. I want you to hear there is a big difference between a person who's struggling with a sin and yet taking genuine responsibility, genuine steps towards repentance and change, asking for help and accountability, and maybe taking one step forward and three steps back, but they're, by the grace of God, making... Uh, making a change by, by turning to Jesus in faith to begin setting them free from it. That's very different from someone who is actively resisting, indulging, glorifying their sin with no intention of healing or holiness through the power and people of God. You see the difference? And when somebody is in that latter category, completely rebellious against God, rejecting repentance, then we remove them from the body of Christ as the final step not the first step. You catch that? And so here in verse 5, we're at the final step, and Paul clarifies, why should we remove someone from the body of Christ? That sounds so cruel. sounds very judgmental. And he says in verse 5, here's the reason why that we do that. The purpose of it, the goal is to hand that man over to Satan for the potential destruction of their flesh so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What that means is, When you take someone and you separate them from the body of Christ, from the church, you're also separating them from the presence and the protection that they've experienced with Jesus in the church within God's family. And the result is that that means sin and Satan get to have their way with that person. And Satan, no matter what you think, is not your friend. He wants to destroy you. And so what's they're saying, what Paul is saying here is that Satan may ruin your life outside of the protection of Jesus and his church. He may even take it. 
But God's goal here is that by facing the reality and the painful ramifications of life apart from Jesus and his family, that it might lead us to genuine repentance and reconciliation so that we might be saved by faith and forgiveness in Christ on the day that he returns in final judgment. It's about thinking about the actual what is good for this person, what is helpful and healing. So many of us, we don't want to do something like this, confront someone about their sin and maybe cause them to have to be, to be removed from the church because we think, well, I don't, that's not my God. My God is loving and kind and gracious and forgiving. And all those things are true when we turn to him, when we acknowledge our sin and turn to him in repentance. But for many of us, we think we're being loving, but we're just ignoring someone's sin because of our own issues, we're our own sensitivities. We think we're being loving, but it's because we're scared. We don't want to be seen as judgmental. We don't want to be rejected by that person. And I want to tell you that by ignoring someone's sin, you think that you're being loving, but you may be loving someone straight to hell. Because they may not be a genuine believer if they don't see sin as a problem. So let me put it to you this way. Many of you know that part of my testimony is that I am a recovering addict. And so I am very familiar with the concept of an intervention. I don't know if you know what an intervention is. Maybe you've heard about it through movies or in, in, about, in Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's when your fam family members and friends and, and a professional, they gather together to confront an addict because they're not taking any steps towards healing and holiness. They're not doing anything to be set free. They're, they're in, living in denial and just embracing their sinfulness. And so what they do is they gather. It's kind of a surprise gathering. It's not like a, a birthday. It's kind of like a surprise birthday party, but an unpleasant one. And uh, all these people who love you and know you gather together, and they share with you three things. Number one, they share with each one by one, here are examples of your destructive behavior, how your behavior is destroying your life, uh, our relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how you're hurting the family, how you're hurting our friendship, how you're hurting your work. Examples of destructive behavior. Number two, uh, I kind of already said it, but the impact that your destructive behavior has on your loved ones. Number three, the steps that you're going to need to take in order for us to be able to support you and embrace you and, and as, that you're working towards change. And number four, what we will do, each of us, if you refuse to seek treatment. And so that might be, include things like, to give you an example, uh, sometimes a family will ask a person who is an alcoholic or drug addict, you need to move out of the house. And that seems really cruel and, and unkind and unhelpful. How is that going to help the person? But you need to understand that there are times that the only way to get someone who refuses to turn away from the rebellion and sin to move is uh, to help them to get honest and to get help is when they face painful consequences and even painful boundaries that this sin is no longer acceptable in our family. It requires repentance and change. And I wanted you to see that this is the same way that God deals with sin when it's taken over our lives, when it's taken control of our lives. That there's times that we need to have a painful intervention to lead us to repentance and redemption. And Jesus talks about it this way in Matthew 16, uh, verse 26. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul. And so it's better for us to lose temp what we have temporarily in this life than to miss out on eternal life. Does that make sense? Now, what we see in this passage is that it's not just about this one man. It's also about the sinfulness of this church. Verse 6, 
Paul condemns their spiritual boasting. And he tells them, you're not as mature as you're deluding yourself to be. That by ignoring and allowing this sin in your midst, it's like having yeast, the, this biblical symbol of, uh, for sin. That it only takes a little bit of sin in, to infiltrate, to permeate, to puff up the entire dough of the church, to infect it. And the way that God puts it in chapter 12, in chapter 12, Paul will describe the church as a body, that each member is interconnected and interdependent part. And so it's, what it's not saying here is that what consenting adults do in private is no one's business, because that's what a lot of us feel like. Sin doesn't just affect us individually, it infects us corporately. And so when we turn a blind eye to the spiritual destruction that sin does in our lives, it's kind of like uh, the church also needs to repent of how we see sin and how we treat sin. So in verse 7, Paul says, we need to cleanse the church of the old yeast of sin because we're meant to be this new yeastless, holy dough, a lot like the unleavened bread that the Exodus Israelites ate at the Passover. Some of you are familiar with that story. Do you, do you know why they ate unleavened bread? Some of it was because they were in a rush to get out of Egypt on the night that they were set free. But that unleavened bread that they ate was a symbol not just of being set free from physical slavery in Egypt, but also being set free from spiritual slavery to sin. And so how do you and I do that? How do we eat from the unleavened bread? By turning to Jesus. It's not about trying harder and doing better. It's not about, like, can I just be good enough and moral enough? But the way that I experience grace and forgiveness and freedom from sin is by turning to Jesus, by trusting in Jesus to be the one to cleanse us. That I can't cleanse myself, but Jesus can cleanse me. Jesus is the one who can set me free. And so Paul says, the same way that God delivered his people from death in Egypt by painting the blood of an unblemished lamb on the doorposts as a substitute sacrifice to pay the redemption price for all of the Israelites so that death for sin would literally pass over them, if you know the story of, of the Exodus, of the Passover, that that story points forward in history to Jesus as not just a lamb of God, but as the lamb of God, who, because of his sacrifice on our behalf, judgment of God and death for sin passes over us. Verse 8, therefore, because we eat unleavened bread, because of the Passover lamb we have in Christ, therefore we celebrate Jesus as our Passover by continuously repenting of our, and removing the yeast of sin in our midst as a church. That because he's cleansed us, we're to live as unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, Paul says. That instead of fooling ourselves by ignoring sin, we need to have a sincere faith that's lived out in the truth of the gospel. Does that mean you're going to be perfect and that we need to put on a mask of being sinless? No. It is always okay to come as you are uh, to the church, to bring your sin and your burdens, to say, I am struggling with this issue, because repentance is about not trying harder, but coming in humility, in weakness, and saying, I need help, I need Jesus. And when you come like that, you're always accepted in the body of Christ. But when we put up a wall and say, I don't have a problem, this sin is not an issue for me, we need to understand that we're just fooling ourselves. And so, 
what Paul is telling us here is, you know, when we say that, well, this is for the person's good and for the church's good, how is this for our good? Because when we remove ongoing, unrepented sin, it's for the redemption of that person. We're trying to save that person. And for the integrity of the church. Because if you treat sin lightly, then we're treating Jesus' sacrifice on a cross lightly as well. And so I want you to see in this passage that the first step when we deal with sin is not kicking a person out. I'll tell you what, I've been a pastor in this church, uh, I think 17 years full-time um, in, in this role, and I've had to do this church discipline, reach this final step four times as a pastor. Unfortunately, having to deal with somebody uh, and having to remove them from church membership. But that was always the final option of church discipline. After months of meeting with people, meeting in tears, uh, spending time in prayer and pleading for their repentance. So the first step is always, do we care about that person's redemption, redemptive well-being? Like Paul, the goal is, I, do I want that person to know Jesus, to be close to Jesus, to be restored to Jesus? Because there's a world of difference between discipline and punishment. If you ask a parent, any parent in this room knows that there's a huge difference. Discipline is about correcting, about redeeming, about saving a person from, dis, from self-destructive behaviors. Punishment is because I'm mad that you did something that I don't like, and so I'm taking it out on you. And that's very different. That's not what this passage is about. So we need to understand the difference between redemptive discipline and angry punishment. But what if that person repeatedly refuses to turn from their sin? Then, like, we, like having an intervention with an alcoholic, do you love the person enough to do the hardest thing, but also the best thing for them? That as we cut someone off from the love and the support and the fellowship of believers temporarily, in the hope that the pain of separation would cause them to turn back to the love and support and the fellowship of Jesus forever. And I want you to think about it this way. Imagine if a pastor or a deacon was embezzling money from the church. Or imagine if there was a family in our church that was suffering because one of the members adultery or abuse and the church never said anything never did anything. What does that say to people about the value of Jesus? What does that say to people about the value of people? What does that say to people about the destructive power of sin and also the transforming power of grace? I want you to imagine being a member in a church where nobody does anything about anyone's sin because we want to love and accept and be inclusive of everybody. And if you see something happening, well, if they can do this and still lead worship or still lead a small group, why can't I do that? Do you see how the yeast of sin ferments and can foment within a church? It's deadly. It's poisonous. Now, this makes sense when you think about egregious sin, like incest, right, that they're dealing with in this issue. But I want you to see that Paul's not just talking about the horrendous, horrific sins that we easily would think like, oh, that's terrible. Of course we shouldn't allow that in the church. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, 
Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. But we must purge the evil person from amongst you. Holy moly. <laughs> Verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us, it's not about separating yourselves from people who are not Christians, who are sinful. Otherwise, you need to build a rocket and then uh, launch and take off and leave Earth, maybe colonize Mars early before Elon Musk does. Because sinfulness, non-Christians who are sinful, that's everyone, everywhere, right? We all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. So it's not about separating yourself from the world and being part of a holy huddle. Because we need the goodness of the gospel to flow into the world. And Paul's saying, we also need to keep the wickedness of the world, bless you, from flowing into the church, bless you. Instead, he says in verse 11, don't associate with a brother in Christ, someone who claims that they love, worship, and serve Jesus, but they live, live as if they love, worship, and serve sin. And he's not just talking about sexual immorality. He goes on, did you notice, to talk about a, a someone who claims to be a brother who's greedy, who's idolatrous, who's a reviler. That means that they're angry and argumentative. They stir dissent and division within the church. Somebody who's an unrepentant drunk or an addict that's not dealing with their sin. Somebody who is a swindler. That means somebody who takes advantage of others and tries to oppress others. Question for you. Why is Paul adding on all these other things, all these other different sins in addition to, here's incest, oh, and also people who are reviling or people who are uh, idolatrous, people who, who drink too much. Why is he adding these things on at, to this list? Why doesn't Paul say, like, in, in addition to incest or sexual immorality, also, you know, uh, bar, remove the brother who is a uh, mass murderer or a cannibal or, you know, something like that, right? I want you to pay attention that this list that he just said in uh, verse 11 is very similar to the list about um, a non-Christian sin in verse 10. And here's why. Here's why this list is the way it is. Because these were the sins that were common to the people, the society of Corinth. These were the things that people commonly practiced, worshiping money, worshiping false gods, worshiping comfort, worshiping their ambition. Oh, that guy, he's just angry. My boss, yeah, he talks really meanly and, and beats people down, verbally abuses them, but he's just an angry guy. Or that guy, don't worry about him, he's just a fun drunk. Oh, you know what? Everybody looks out for themselves. Everybody uses and abuses people for their own benefit as a swindler. It's not a big deal. These were all sins that were considered publicly acceptable in the society of court. You catch that? And so these were practices that were prevalent in their culture, destroying the moral fabric of their communities and blurring the eyes of the people within their church because this is what they see. This is what their hometown looks like. This is just how people are. And Paul says, you need to separate yourself from a brother who is living in these kinds of sins. Don't even eat with them. Well, that sounds really cruel, right? But I want you to picture in your mind, in the ancient Near East, that sharing a meal over a table is a big deal. It's Fellowshipping over a meal communicates acceptance as a family, as our friend. Especially for the Christians, they're talking about over the communion table. By having 
of a meal with you over the communion table or together in public in the ancient Near East culture. It's communicating, I accept you, I value you, I see you as my friend, my equal, my brother. What you, your goal in life, what you worship, I accept. What you value, I accept. And so we know that Jesus, our great Savior and Lord, he sat and ate with sinners, people who were full of sin but did not know him yet. And we should too, because we want people who don't know Jesus to hear and experience Jesus' love and forgiveness and acceptance by faith in him. But if someone is a professing Christian, and yet they're living in sin repeatedly, defiantly, broadcasting and blurring that there's no moral distinction between the church and the world, and they are undermining the gospel and undermining the presence and the power and the transformation that happens in Christ. So in verses 12 through 13, Paul says, it's not our job to judge people outside the church. That's what Jesus does, right? He's going to return at the end of history that the day of the Lord is when he comes back as the ultimate and final judge. But the church is responsible for dealing with those who say they are part of the body of Christ who can affect each other because we testify to the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And so the way we do that, confronting is we need to be honest. And we also need to be gracious. Paul talks about it in Ephesians, right? We need to speak the truth, in the, the truth of Christ in the love of Christ. And if that person refuses to re- repent, refuses to receive the forgiveness and freedom from sin and re- receive grace from God, then Paul quotes Deuteronomy, that you must purge that sinfulness, that evil wickedness from your midst. And so I want you to see in this passage that it's not just egregious sins, obvious sins, but that the church is called to confront and remove ongoing unrepentant sins that might be considered socially acceptable in our world. So I want you to think about what sin is acceptable in the culture but ignored in the church? What sexual activity or immorality outside of the God-given boundaries of marriage between a, a man and a woman are you embracing and accepting? Are you allowing for greediness? Like, are you hoarding your money and your time in such a way that that's an idol in your heart? Do you worship your career or your kids or your people or your pleasures more than you worship Jesus? Do you speak words that are angry and hurtful or slanderous, a reviler, and you tell yourself, Well, I'm just being honest. I'm just telling it like it is. But actually, you're just being wicked and telling it like you shouldn't. Are you willing to see yourself maybe as somebody who constantly turns to the bottle in celebration or in devastation instead of turning to Jesus? Are you the type of person that takes advantage of people and situations for your personal gain? These are all on the list that, Jesus, that Paul talks about in the same breath as sexual immorality. And the question is, are we willing to confront it out of love and truth and remove it if necessary for the good of that person, the good of the church, and the glory of God? Because what's at stake here is the health, the holiness, the eternal destiny of those trapped in sin as well as the glory and integrity of the name of Jesus and his church. Pastor Herschel York, 
I heard from an, a member of his old church in uh, Arkansas. Uh, his uh, man named Bob was the chairman of the, of the deacons when uh, he was the pastor there and his closest friend at the church. And he heard through the grapevine that that man had left his wife and was living with another woman. And he couldn't believe it. So he called Bob's wife, Doreen. What happened? Doreen says, it's true uh, what you heard. He, he left me. He didn't even divorce me. He's already living with another, another woman. So Pastor Herschel's like, okay, give me the number. And he called, and this woman answered, yes, is Bob there? Yes, may I ask who's calling? Tell him his friend and former pastor, Herschel York, is calling. And as she repeated who was calling uh, to Bob, you could hear him choking on the other end of the line and kind of hesitating, pausing, because he didn't want to take the phone. He finally did, and as an old friend, he was able to just say very directly, Bob, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? Unfortunately, Bob was very honest with him. You know what, uh, Herschel, uh, I'm tired of being the only one in my marriage who makes an effort. What am I supposed to do when I give and give and give and then get nothing in return? What should I do? What do you do when you try to experience love to your wife, but she won't return that back to you? What should I do when I give everything that I have, but she never even says thank you? So do you see what's happening here? He's rationalizing a little bit. Little bit. He's showing us socially acceptable reasons to abandon this marriage and sin. And so Pastor Herschel says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make the hard decision to obey Jesus anyways. So I want you to go pack up right now, pack up your things, go home to your wife, and the both of you are going to drive all the way up here to Lexington, Kentucky from Arkansas and spend the whole weekend with us. Fortunately, Bob decided to, to humble himself and did exactly those things. And so they spent a whole weekend, Pastor Herschel and his wife, ministering to this couple from the Word of God. And after that weekend, they went back with the decision, verbally declaring, okay, we'll try to make it work. Three weeks later, this couple returned to their home with their two kids and said, we want you to marry us again. We want to repeat our vows. We want to start afresh. Because that's what happens when we humble ourselves in repentance. When we humble ourselves enough to receive grace and forgiveness, God can transform even the stoniest, most broken hearts. Recently, Pastor Herschel called the wife again, Doreen, how are things going? And she says, if anyone ever told me that my marriage and life could be this good, I would never have believed them. Isn't that the goal of calling out sin and cutting off sin so that people can experience the help and hope of the gospel in reality? That people can experience the presence and the power and the redemption that comes in Jesus? So Paul's encouraging us, don't compromise the word of God just because the world says something is acceptable. And I'll be honest with you, uh, if you're anything like me, we're often reluctant to confront people about their sin because we're scared of being judgmental. We're scared that it might be turned against us at some point. And so I want you to, let's flip the script a little bit and think about it this way. I think about uh, when my wife Melissa calls me out on my sin or a failure or a mistake. And I'll be honest with you, I'm tempted in that moment to cover it up to ignore it, to live a self-destructive lie. 
Why? Because I rationalize, right? Well, my sin's not so bad. You know, I'm fine, our marriage is fine, our family's fine. Or I rationalize, well, it's too much trouble to deal with this. Like, I don't want to have all this drama at home and, and, and the pain of having to deal with my sin. Or rationalizing that the cost is too, is too high. What if my wife rejects me instead of showing me acceptance and grace? What if I feel shamed by her? What if she can't forgive me? And so my tendency in that moment is to want to turn a blind eye on the flashing check engine light that's, that my wife is signaling. But when you bring something into the light... That's the only way that we can experience the forgiveness, the acceptance, the healing, and the grace of Jesus. But in darkness, sin festers and foments and ferments, and it affects, infects and affects everything. So if you find me in sin, I hope that you will love me enough to confront me and not let me go, thinking that you're doing me a favor. Better to bring something into the light to experience rep repentance and restoration personally before it becomes so poisonous to the body of Christ that Jesus requires that it be removed publicly, but still for our good and his glory. Are you turning a blind eye to a flashing check engine light of sin with one of your friends, with one of your family members, with someone in your growth group at church? We need to be clear about the effect of unrepentant sin on that person, on the church, on the gospel. You see, the Corinthians' problem is that they don't see sin as seriously as it is. And Paul says, don't treat it lightly. When there's just a little bit of sin, the resu it results in members of a church who feel they're just a little guilty, and men who commit just a little adultery, and unmarried women who get just a little bit pregnant, and greedy people thinking that they're just a little bit selfish, in people who are distracted from God, feeling that they're just a little bit idolatrous. idolatrous. In bigots, thinking that they're just a little bit racist. And in churches that have very little impact on the world around them for the gospel. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose not to condemn us, but to set us free, to give us life that is real and everlasting. And the gospel is the hope of the world. And the church for some reason, is his chosen vehicle for that. And so we need to live like it together. And the word of God is saying to us this morning, we have to do some spiritual house cleaning. We need to purge the old leaven to confront it, to heal it, to remove it. And so may we love and trust Jesus. And may we love and trust one another enough to do that together. God, as we turn our hearts over to you, this is a very frightening passage and can be misinterpreted in a very painful way to make churches very judgmental and cruel towards one another. Instead, may we love each other enough, be gracious enough to confront one another of our sins in truth and in kindness. And just as your word says, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And so help us, Lord, when we see someone trapped in sin sinfulness, not Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody comes and, and sins. But when we're trapped in unrepentant, ongoing sin that we just can't escape from, may we love each other enough to speak kindly, not to browbeat people, but to lead someone to, towards repentance. May we love each other enough that even if someone is stuck, even if I'm the person who refuses to repent, 
that we might face the pain of removing them temporarily from the family of Jesus, that they might experience that separation and may it lead them back, lead me back to loving and trusting and worshiping you with my life. In Jesus' name.